You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode 151 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In the last episode, we discussed the First Battle of Winchester, which took place on Sunday, May 25th, 1862. But before we continue on with what happened after Stonewall Jackson's victory at Winchester, this might be a good time to hit the pause button, so to speak, and quickly review the outline of the Valley Campaign thus far, since we've been covering this story arc for a number of weeks now, and a lot has already taken place. Okay, so as you guys will recall, the 1862 Valley Campaign had its origins in the Confederate desire to limit the size of the Union threat against Richmond. McClellan's advance up the peninsula was the most direct threat to the Confederate capital, but then, a bit later on, the danger to Richmond was magnified by the potential advance of another Federal force south from Fredericksburg. If that force, led by Irvin McDowell, could link up with McClellan at the very doorstep of Richmond, it would almost certainly result in the fall of the rebel capital. And so all of Stonewall Jackson's maneuvering and fighting out in the Shenandoah was ultimately meant to so engage the attentions of the Yankees there that it would prevent them from leaving the valley to aid the drive to capture Richmond. Jackson had taken an initial step toward that end with an offensive movement in late March that resulted in the First Battle of Kernstown. That clash was a Confederate tactical defeat, but it nonetheless had persuaded the Federals to hold Nathaniel Banks in the valley, which in turn set up Stonewall's subsequent success. Well, while Richard S. Ewell's division had kept an eye on Banks, Jackson took his command westward from Stanton, united with a small force under Edward Allegheny Johnson, and struck at the advance element of John C. Fremont's Federal Army at McDowell on May 8th. That fight ended with the Yankees, under Milroy and Shank, retreating back into the rugged terrain of the Alleghenies. With the battle at McDowell and his subsequent pursuit of the Federals up into the mountains, Stonewall checked Fremont, and he, Stonewall, was now free to return to the valley and deal with Banks. Jackson returned to the Shenandoah and marched northward toward New Market, while Ewell's division paralleled his movement to the east in the Luray Valley. Traversing Massanutten Mountain at New Market Gap, the only passage across that forbidding barrier along its 50-mile length, Stonewall joined Ewell in the Luray Valley. 
That Confederate Army, under Jackson's overall command, then marched northward toward Front Royal, and after a brief battle, captured that place on Friday, May 23rd. Jackson's victory at Front Royal neatly outflanked Nathaniel Banks' main position over at Strasburg, and on Saturday, May 24th, the Federals were forced to quickly withdraw northward on the Valley Turnpike to Winchester. Stonewall missed an opportunity to destroy Banks' force while that force was in the midst of the withdrawal, but the next day, Sunday, May 25th, Jackson defeated the Federals at the First Battle of Winchester. Banks led the defeated Yankees on a retreat northward all the way to the Potomac, and then they crossed over the river and into Maryland. Meanwhile, as we mentioned last time, Abraham Lincoln recognized that as Jackson pressed northward down the valley, he was vulnerable to a Union counterattack in his rear. Lincoln therefore put into motion a plan to trap and destroy Stonewall. Lincoln intended that Banks' routed command would be reinforced, and then Banks could recross the Potomac into Virginia and advance on Winchester. Meanwhile, the two jaws of the trap that would snap shut behind Stonewall would consist of Fremont's Federals advancing east out of the Alleghenies, aiming for Harrisonburg, while a strong force detached from McDowell's command at Fredericksburg would move westward into the valley, aiming for Strasburg. The jaws of the Union trap would snap shut south of Jackson's army, isolating Stonewall in the lower valley, where the Confederates could be destroyed or captured. And that's just about where we left off last time, so... On Monday, May 26th, the day after the Confederate victory at Winchester, the soldiers of the Valley Army had a chance to reflect on what they'd accomplished so far in the campaign, as Jackson granted a day of rest and thanksgiving. Stonewall issued a proclamation thanking the men for their, quote, brilliant gallantry in action and patriotic obedience under the hardship of forced marches, end quote. But he reminded them that their chief duty in victory was to give thanks to God. To properly give thanks to the Almighty, regimental chaplains were ordered to hold divine services at four o'clock that afternoon. Stonewall himself worshipped with the 33rd Virginia. The Valley Army enjoyed a second consecutive day of rest on May 27th as Jackson considered just how far north to advance. Absent new orders, Robert E. Lee's directive of May 16th continued to shape Stonewall's course. In that message, Lee had said that if Jackson defeated Banks in battle, he was to, quote, drive him back toward the Potomac and create the impression, as far as practicable, that you designed threatening that line, end quote. Stonewall had accomplished the first part of Lee's directive. It remained for him to fulfill the second. To that end, he decided to make a demonstration toward Harper's Ferry. So on the evening of Tuesday, the 27th, he ordered the Stonewall Brigade to march on Harper's Ferry the next morning by way of Charlestown. Jackson also took steps to secure his flanks while the Stonewall Brigade marched north and made this strong demonstration upon Harper's Ferry. On the 27th, he ordered the 12th Georgia, which had fought so well at McDowell, to backtrack and garrison Front Royal. 
Stonewall gave the regiment's commander, Colonel Z.T. Connor, strict orders to prevent the Federals from securing the bridges over the north and south forks of the Shenandoah River. Should the Yankees advance and force Connor to retreat from Front Royal, he was to burn the bridges in order to protect the Valley Army's flank and rear. Besides sending the 12th Georgia to Front Royal, Jackson also sent Taylor's Brigade to Berryville to watch the road into the valley from Leesburg. And then a detachment of Turner Ashby's cavalry was to keep an eye on Fremont's Federals west of the valley. Finally, to guard against an early return of Nathaniel Banks and to seize the stores the Yankees had left behind at Martinsburg, Stonewall detached the 1st Maryland to occupy the town. Had Jackson sent a force toward Harper's Ferry two days earlier, he might have succeeded in creating a panic there with minimal effort. But by the time the Stonewall Brigade marched on the place, the Federals were ready. The Union garrison of 7,000 men at Harper's Ferry was commanded by Brigadier General Rufus Saxton, and although by May 29th the Stonewall Brigade had advanced right up to the town and even occupied Loudoun Heights on the east bank of the Shenandoah opposite Harper's Ferry, Saxton nevertheless checked the Confederate threat by occupying a strong line of defense that included Maryland Heights above the town. Meanwhile, Jackson had elected to up the ante and increase the pressure on Harper's Ferry by edging the bulk of his command farther north from Winchester. And so, on Thursday the 29th, he advanced the army from Winchester to Halltown, halfway between Charlestown and Harper's Ferry, and within sight of Bolivar Heights, the commanding ground that lay between the Potomac and Shenandoah Rivers west of Harper's Ferry. But the game was about to change. Shortly after midnight on Wednesday night, an elderly civilian had come into Winchester with news that Shields Federals had left Fredericksburg and were only a day's march from Front Royal. The man said he had personally seen Shields' column as it marched to return to the valley, and he had ridden twelve hours to warn Stonewall of the danger. Sandy Pendleton escorted the man to the general on Thursday morning, but Jackson dismissed his story as rumor. However, news that Jackson deemed more reliable came in that night, the night of Thursday the 29th. Ashby's cavalry reported that Fremont was on the march, moving out of the mountains with the evident intention of advancing on Strasburg. And scouts returning from the Blue Ridge also confirmed the advance of Shields' division and the threat to Front Royal. Stonewall immediately understood the implications of this news. He realized that the Valley Army had suddenly gone from being the hunter to being the hunted. Two Federal pincers advancing from east and west threatened his rear, while to his front, at Harper's Ferry, Saxton had 7,000 men, and Banks, at Williamsport, had been been reinforced to 7,000 also. Fremont, coming out of the Allegheny Mountains, had about 14,800 men. Then advancing across the Blue Ridge, McDowell was bringing Shields' 11,000 men, and following behind them was another division, 10,000 strong. Add it all up, and including Banks and Saxton in the equation, just over 52,000 Federals were within striking distance of Jackson's 16,000 troops.
Abraham Lincoln's plan to trap Stonewall Jackson may have looked good on paper, but the President and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton soon found that the flesh-and-blood chess pieces far off on the field refused to move as their handlers in Washington desired. To Lincoln and Stanton, the march that Fremont had been directed to make out of the Allegheny Mountains from Franklin to Harrisonburg, where he would strike the Valley Turnpike, looked simple enough. On the map, the distance between the two places was 41 miles, nearly in a straight line over a good road. But in reality, for Fremont, the obstacles to the movement that Lincoln had demanded were insurmountable. Much scorn has justifiably been heaped upon John C. Fremont's military abilities by Civil War historians and by this Civil War podcast. But in this instance, there was truly, actually, just no way that Fremont could comply with Lincoln's orders to march directly to Harrisonburg. Lincoln's directive took into account neither Fremont's already unsustainable supply line nor the wretched condition of Fremont's command and that wretched condition of the troops being due to the just-mentioned already abysmal supply situation. Additionally, the that road out of the mountains that looked so good on maps was, in fact, a wreck. The only option open to Fremont, he believed, was to double back upon his supply line until he reached Petersburg, where ample stores and rations awaited. And then from Petersburg, he would strike east into the valley by way of Moorefield and trust his luck in getting to Strasburg before Jackson slipped back up the valley. Fremont figured that by doing this, which was the only realistic course he saw before him, he'd be obeying the spirit, if not the letter, of Lincoln's order. Once he completed the 30-mile march to Petersburg, punctuated by hailstorms and downpours of cold rain, Fremont lost little time in the place. He directed that all extra baggage, including tents and knapsacks, be left at Petersburg, and with the resupply of ammunition and five days' cooked rations in the men's haversacks, he had brought his army to Moorefield, on the road to Strasburg by the evening of May 27th. That night, Fremont received as curt a telegram as President Lincoln ever sent to a general in the field. Dated 9.58 p.m., it read, I see that you are at Moorefield. You were expressly ordered to march to Harrisonburg. What does this mean? Fremont answered twice, attempting to explain why he couldn't execute Lincoln's order literally, but instead had exercised his discretion to comply with the broad intent of the president's order. But Lincoln, in his anger and frustration at Fremont, would have none of it. Lincoln was not interested in the reality of Fremont's situation. In the president's mind, there had been no room for discretion in his order. He had expected strict adherence to his instructions. In the subsequent exchange of telegrams, Lincoln and Stanton treated Fremont unjustly, as hard as as it is for us to say that. But Fremont was actually doing his level best to comply with the spirit of the presidential orders, since there was no way he could comply with the letter of his instructions. Finally, after a frustrating exchange of orders, counter-orders, and responses, at noon on May 29th, Lincoln telegraphed Fremont a destination and time to be there. Quote, 
General McDowell's advance, if not checked by the enemy, will be at Front Royal by 12 noon tomorrow, May 30th. His force, when up, will be about 20,000. Please have your force at Strasbourg, or if the route you are moving on does not lead to that point, as near Strasbourg as the enemy may be by the same time. End quote. But the march out of the mountains through rugged terrain and accompanied by constant rain had just about used up Fremont's already worn-down men and his weak and underfed horses. And so one can imagine Lincoln's irritation when he read Fremont's response, for the general explained that he couldn't possibly be at Strasburg before 5 p.m. on May 31st. Lincoln seemed to finally, if grudgingly, acknowledge some limited understanding of matters in Fremont's army, though, when he told Fremont on Thursday afternoon, quote, Yours, saying you will reach Strasburg or vicinity at 5 p.m. Saturday, has been received and sent to General McDowell, and he directed to act in view of it, end quote. So Lincoln had seemingly decided to hope for the best from Fremont, but expect the worst. It's clear, though, that regardless of what happened on Fremont's end, the president fully anticipated that McDowell, storming into the valley with 20,000 men, was absolutely strong enough to take on Stonewall on his own and prevail. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As was evident from Lincoln's grumpy May 29th telegram to Fremont, McDowell's end of the operation seemed to have given a better account of itself over the previous four days. Shields wasn't happy about having to return to the Shenandoah Valley, but he marched and marched fast to comply with his orders. Shields set out on the morning of May 26th, and that same day, Brigadier General E.O.C. Ord's division also began to move, but it would take a more roundabout route. On the evening of May 28th, Lincoln telegraphed McDowell, who had moved his headquarters to Manassas Junction, and told him, quote, 
I think the evidence now preponderates that Yule and Jackson are still about Winchester. Assuming this, it is for you a question of legs. Put in all the speed you can. I have told Fremont as much and directed him to drive at them as fast as possible. End quote. McDowell responded, telling Lincoln, quote, I beg to assure you that I am doing everything which legs and steam are capable of to hurry forward matters in this quarter. I shall be deficient in wagons when I get out of the way of the railroad for transporting supplies, but shall push on nevertheless. End quote. Shields agreed, writing to McDowell on the 29th and saying, All well and everything going on finely. Shields promised to set off for Front Royal first thing the next morning and to be there by evening. McDowell, in turn, directed Ord to follow in support of Shields as rapidly as possible, and as the question was not only one of legs, but also of hooves, he told Brigadier General George Bayard to have the Federal Cavalry on the shortest road to Front Royal with all possible haste. We just wanted to mention here, in connection with our comments regarding the movements of the divisions led by Shields and Ord, that as far as Abraham Lincoln's decision to suspend McDowell's advance on Richmond, well, this was almost certainly the wrong choice. While Lincoln's desire to trap Stonewall Jackson in the valley is an admirable one, the better strategic use of McDowell's force would have been to continue with the plan that had already been agreed upon. That is, that McDowell would march south from Fredericksburg and join McClellan at the gates of Richmond. By suspending McDowell's movement to join McClellan, Lincoln was reacting exactly as the Confederate authorities, especially Robert E. Lee, hoped. Remember, Jackson's activities in the Shenandoah were only ever meant to be a distraction in the hopes that the Federals in the Valley would remain there and not be available to aid the drive to capture the Confederate capital. But Stonewall's victory at Winchester and push to the Potomac exceeded even those expectations when Lincoln ordered McDowell to detach 20,000 men to go chase down and catch Jackson and suspended McDowell's planned march to join McClellan in front of Richmond. McDowell immediately realized that Lincoln was taking his eye off the prize, so to speak, and he vigorously protested the president's order, almost to the point of insubordination, but to no avail. McClellan, for his part, at first, rather unexpectedly, meekly assented to the suspension of McDowell's movement to join him, probably because Little Mac realized that Lincoln expected him to advance on Richmond with or without McDowell. But McClellan also eventually echoed McDowell's criticism of Lincoln's decision to pursue what the generals considered a wild goose chase at the expense of what should have been the primary strategic objective of Richmond. On the morning of Friday, May 30th, couriers arrived at Stonewall Jackson's headquarters with yet more grim news that Shields and Fremont were closing in on Front Royal and Strasburg, 50 miles behind the Valley Army. There was also word that a reinforced Banks had sent patrols back across the Potomac. But despite the trouble brewing all around him, 
Stonewall kept up his his high-stakes bluff in the lower valley as he directed movements that gave the impression he intended to storm Harper's Ferry. But the strain of keeping up the bluff in the face of growing danger was beginning to tell on Jackson. His behavior became more erratic and odd, which was almost certainly a sign of his growing fatigue and stress. Finally, however, on Friday afternoon, realizing that he had done all he could with his demonstration toward the Potomac, he issued orders for the bulk of his army to start back to Winchester. Winder and the Stonewall Brigade, however, were to make one last strong feint towards Harper's Ferry on Friday evening to keep Saxton and the Federals there off balance. Then Winder was to cover the Valley Army's rear during the withdrawal. On Friday afternoon, as the Valley Army, except the Stonewall Brigade, filed onto the road that would take them back to Winchester, a heavy rain began to fall. Rumors regarding the danger they were facing had spread like wildfire throughout the army, and the men understood that in order to escape the trap closing in around them, they were now being called upon to make another seemingly impossible march. As Reverend J. William Jones, chaplain of the 25th Virginia, put it, quote, We entered the lists for a race to Strasbourg. I can never forget that march. Press forward was the constant order, and when the troops were well-nigh exhausted, word was passed down the column, General Jackson desires the command to push forward much further tonight in order to accomplish a very important object. And every man bent his energies to meet the requirement, while the muddy, weary road was enlivened by jest and song and cheers. While his men marched through the rain, Jackson decided to take the train from Charlestown to Winchester, perhaps another sign of his fatigue. Alexander Bodler, the Confederate congressman, was also on the train, and he said that Stonewall slept all the way to Winchester except for one interruption. That interruption came at Stevenson's Depot, where the train stopped when a lone rider intercepted it. That rider was Jedediah Hotchkiss, and he had ridden through the mud and rain to deliver a message to Jackson. The news carried by Hotchkiss could not have been worse. The dispatch was from Colonel Z.T. Connor, and it told, told Stonewall that late on Friday morning, Shields advancing Federals had driven the 12th Georgia from Front Royal. The message, which the colonel had scribbled in Winchester, read, General, just arrived, the enemy in full pursuit. Unless immediately supported, all is lost. Yours, Connor. The suddenness of the Union assault on Front Royal was a tribute to the aggressiveness of James Shields and the hard marching of his lead brigade, commanded by Nathan Kimball. Irvin McDowell had promised President Lincoln that Shields would be in Front Royal by noon on May 30th, and Shields was determined not to disappoint. An all-night march brought Kimball's brigade to the outskirts of Front Royal 30 minutes before noon on Friday. As the hard-charging Yankees stormed into town, Connor and his Georgians retreated. The fleeing rebels managed to set fire to the road bridge over the south fork of the Shenandoah, but in their haste, the Georgians neglected to fire the railroad bridge. Colonel Connor had escaped the Yankees, but that evening at Winchester, Stonewall Jackson summoned him to give an account of his actions. 
Upon entering Jackson's office in the Taylor Hotel, Connor decided to get the worst out of the way, saying, General, I suppose you have heard of my misfortune at Front Royal. A clearly annoyed Jackson snapped, Yes. Connor said, Well, General, I did the best fighting I could, but we were overpowered. Stonewall, though, wasn't interested in excuses. He asked, Colonel Connor, how many men did you have killed? I had no men killed, replied Connor. Colonel Connor, do you call that fighting? Stonewall demanded, and then dismissed the thunderstruck officer. Connor left the room, on the way telling the Valley Army's chief commissary officer, Wells Hawks, Major, I believe General Jackson is crazy. A few moments later, Stonewall's aide, Sandy Pendleton, emerged from the general's office and confronted Connor, telling him, Colonel, you are to consider yourself under arrest. Now I know he is crazy, an amazed Connor told Hawks. As heavy rains continued to drench the lower Shenandoah Valley that Friday night, Jackson summoned Jedediah Hotchkiss sometime after 10 p.m. that night and told him to ride back toward Harper's Ferry at once and bring back Winder and the Stonewall Brigade. Hotchkiss later recalled that he never saw Jackson display more anxiety than he did that night when he impressed the mapmaker with his concern over getting the Stonewall Brigade safely reunited with the rest of the Army. Jackson told Hotchkiss he would remain in Winchester as long as he could, awaiting Winder in the Stonewall Brigade, but Hotchkiss was to see to it that Winder moved with all possible speed. With those instructions, Hotchkiss and a small escort set off into the wet, stormy, pitch-black night. Jedediah Hotchkiss is usually a reliable witness, and there's no reason to doubt his testimony concerning Jackson's anxiety the night of May 30th. Not just the Stonewall Brigade, but the entire Valley Army was in a critical situation with little prospect of escape. The two jaws of the Federal trap seemed about to snap shut at Strasburg. Shields' division at Front Royal was only 12 miles from the place, while Fremont, coming down out of the Allegheny Mountains, was 20 miles away. As for the Confederates, that night the bulk of the Valley Army bivouacked at Stevenson's Depot, 25 miles from Strasburg, while the Stonewall Brigade was nearly twice that distance away from the town. An easy march beginning early on Saturday the 31st would put Shields with 11,000 men astride the Valley Turnpike at Strasburg by mid-morning. Fremont might have his lead elements there sometime that afternoon. In other words, on Saturday, Union forces double the number of Jackson's army could easily close Stonewall's only escape route. And then there were Saxton and Banks. Winder's final demonstration before Harper's Ferry had frozen Saxton on the defensive, but Nathaniel Banks appeared ready to recross the Potomac at any moment. And so May 31st might well prove to be the day the Valley Army found itself trapped and forced to fight for its very survival. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Lens of War, Exploring Iconic Photographs of the Civil War. 
edited by J. Matthew Gallman and Gary W. Gallagher. This is a really interesting book. It grew out of an invitation to leading Civil War historians to select and reflect upon a single photograph. Each could choose any image and interpret it in a scholarly or in personal terms. And the result is a pretty remarkable set of over two dozen essays organized into sections by topic, leaders, soldiers, civilians, victims, and places. And there is an essay on Stonewall Jackson, and that selection is titled The Weird One, and the photograph is the so-called Chancellorsville portrait that was taken in April 1863, just a month before Stonewall was wounded by friendly fire at the Battle of Chancellorsville, and then, of course, uh, he died eight days later. So that's Lens of War, Exploring Iconic Photographs of the Civil War, edited by Gallman and Gallagher. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We have quite a few new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank, uh, Justin, Dan, Ashley, Gerald, and Thomas. And then we also want to thank Rob S. in Maryland and Alan O. in Florida for their donations. Thanks, guys. Thanks also to everyone for your thoughts and prayers when I went home to Arkansas for a family emergency. But all is well. We both said it's kind of strange how I had to go home to Pennsylvania in April of last year because of my dad. And then this April, it turned out to be Tracy's turn with her dad. It's difficult being here in Colorado, so far away from home, when things like that happen. Uh, But as Tracy said, thankfully, everything is okay now. All right, with that, we'll say thank you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We do hope you'll join us again next week when we continue with the story of the Valley Campaign. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.